Breaking Banks Asia is brought to you today by Kamakura Co. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> As has been pointed out, when you think of good defense strategies, you try to be aware of all the possibilities, including the unknown unknowns. If your business needs to be certain of the things you think you know, able to get clear answers to the things you don't know, and can quickly discover the important things you didn't even know you didn't know, then you probably need Chris, the Kamakura Risk Information Service. Chris provides real-time intelligence on business conditions across 68 countries, honing from 39,000 probabilities, each with exposures ranging from 30 days to 10 years. Chris is used to manage exposures, identify trends, and see opportunities. And Chris is the leading global service to ensure that you know what you need to know and can anticipate and see around the corner to see some of the things you didn't know you didn't know. If you want to know more, send an email to BBA for Breaking Banks Asia at kamakuraco, K-A-M-A-K-U-R-A-C-O dot com. BBA at kamakuraco.com and learn more about Chris and how Kamakura can help you. FinTech, or financial technology, is changing everything about the way we bank to the very concept of money itself. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia, the podcast dedicated to exploring how this disruption is affecting the Asia-Pacific area. Here is your host, Simon Spencer. So I'm joined today by Alan Sen. Now, Alan is the GM for Stone and & Chalk, and we're here to talk about fintech. We're here to talk about the Melbourne fintech incubator. And uh, so welcome, Alan, to Breaking Banks Asia. Thanks for having me. Looks great to have you here. Been uh, been a while, so uh, get you in the diary. You're a busy man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a busy time. I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk all things uh, fintech here in Melbourne, but some exciting stuff that Stone & Chalk has been involved in. So, yeah. So, so before we launch into the, the fintech hub, you know, yeah. which uh, being a resident of Melbourne, I'm very interested in what that's all about. But um, before we launch into that, tell me a bit about yourself. You know, how did you get to where you are, and what's your short version of your of your story? Yeah, so it's, it's really linear. As all, no, I'm just kidding. It's it's never linear, right? I think you've done enough for all of these interviews to know that most people end up in this space in a roundabout way. Um, I'm no different. Uh, so. Uh, did the usual thing that most people do that are uh, into learning and education, ended up co- doing common law. Um, don't hold that against me. Uh, practiced law for a while, did a company when I was young as well. So started my first company when I was 18, education space. Company's still going great. Uh, really proud of that actually. And probably outside of FinTech, education is another space that I'm really interested in. And went out, practiced law for a while, was a tax lawyer um, in a big building in the city. Realized that's probably not where I should be for the rest of my career. I left, went back into the company I founded. At that time, I started to get really interested in blockchain and digital currency. Um, And I joke with people, once you're a lawyer, you're always a lawyer. So went to- What year would that have been? So I left practice, would have been uh, 11. Yeah. 2011, I left practice. That's that's pretty early on. Yeah, 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 it was really early on. Started to hear a few interesting things about it. it's interesting, right? Because I think digital currency is, and I mean, maybe we'll chat about this in a bit more detail later, but I think there's a whole bunch of really interesting bits of technology that have come together. Um, and there was some 
different things that people were talking about around that time, around distributed networks and the like. So got really interested in that space, sort of had a few friends who got in early. So uh, probably a year or two after I left practice, really got into it, um, market went up. Um, so obviously, who do you want to talk to when you realize you made a bit of money? Well, your friend who's the ex-tax guy, right? So a few of my friends have come to me and um, talk about this uh, fictional money, right? And I'm just like, oh, it's Linden dollars, right? This is just like fake money. Uh, so first time, second time, third time, I started getting really interested in And then fell into the rabbit hole, started going to the meetups, met all the people in Melbourne, started running the meetups, um, and then found my way into the broader uh, ecosystem of tech. Um, and then from there, uh, spent a bit of time helping out in the community. Eventually got tapped on the shelter to run an all called FinTech Victoria. At that point, met a chap named uh, Alex Gandura, who is our CEO of um, Stone Short. And uh, we built a relationship over time. And then when sort of Melbourne was a thing that he thought could be done, um, he asked me if I'd be interested in leading the ship here. And thus, uh, we are in 2018 and Stone & is in Melbourne. Yeah, it's no secret there's always this Melbourne-Sydney thing. And um, is Melbourne different to Sydney from your experience? Yeah, Melbourne Stone & Chalk versus Sydney Stone & Chalk. Are there differences? Look, uh, I think it's always like, let's be honest, right? Like, Australia's a few people, right? There's, like, there's 12, the grand, there's 12 of us. There's 12 of us, right? <laughs> like, we're, we're marginally bigger than New Zealand. I'm just kidding, right? But it's it's a small league. It's a small uh, economy um, as it is. And if we start breaking out the cities, I mean, it's, just, it's sort of nonsense, right? And, I mean, that's part of why we want to be in Melbourne from a stone short perspective is we want to really bridge the gap between um, the two cities and then hopefully, you know, maybe one day hmm. all the cities, right? So, um Look, people always play up the differences, but the reality is, I mean, we need to think about more. How do we really bridge the gap between the two cities and how do we really connect them better? And that's, you know, part of what we're trying to do with Stone Shore. I think it's always a um, a very simplistic conversation when you start comparing one is better than the other. It's yeah. all, it's more sort of sometimes there are different styles and it's certainly not one is competing with another. You know, if, if, if anybody in startups is looking to compete with Sydney as your horizon or, or Melbourne, vice versa, then you're clearly in the wrong game because, you yeah. know, the competition is, is, is overseas, the competition is elsewhere. You know, if your horizon is set, you know, just a few hundred miles or a few, you know, a thousand miles to the north, then, yeah. then that's insane. Um, but that said, I think there are some interesting sort of there, there are some differences, and and you know the the ecosystem that you know Daladarkus and, and and Launch Victoria and and others in here in Victoria are trying to build. Mm. I think they are trying to do something that's a little different at the moment. Um, that said, if it works, I'm sure it'll appear everywhere. So it's certainly interesting to watch the sort of the emergence of the Melbourne fintech scene, which I think for a while was was probably a fair way behind um, the same sort of scene in, in New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia. Um, so it's it's Melbourne fintech and, and Victorian fintech, I think has really accelerated quite quickly over the last yeah. sort of 12 to 24 months. If you think about how the ecosystems have developed, the New South Wales one and the Victorian one, they're different, right? So hmm. if you think about New South Wales, what really happened in New South Wales was bunch of individuals got together and said there should be some agglomeration of fintechs and thus Stone Chalk was really born, right? Um, and from there, fintechs radiated out, right? Oh. So it's really the home of fintech in New South Wales and, you know, and for a long time in Australia. But in Melbourne, it's, it's developed differently, oh. right? So it's really been ecosystem driven. Yeah, more organic. A little organic, bit. meetups, people getting together, wanting to chat about the fintech ecosystem, um, a little bit nomadic, 
right? Mm. In, in the sense that, you know, the meetups would move around. But that was a good way to engage with people. Mm. So, you know, I was early on helping out with um, one of the bigger meetups, uh, FinTech Melbourne. Um, and, you know, we, we saw it. There was just like a few people in a room then a few more people in a room. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had 200 people events and Shane Elliott. Yeah. Uh, you know, a few hundred people in a room, right? It's, that's just where mm. it's evolved from. But it's been being a little bit nomadic and moving around, um, it, it's allowed us to, you know, pick people up along the way, mm. right? So different organizations have got behind it, um, more people have come along and, and the ecosystem's built. And now we've got the hub, I think that's gonna change mm. a bit as well. Breaking Banks uh, covers a pretty broad landscape and it's interesting to see the, you know, Stone and Chalk, you cover a pretty broad space as well. Yeah. You know, you've got Agritech in there, you know, some IoT th- you know, things in there. It's, you know, obviously Bitcoin, blockchain, as well as your neobank type stuff. So it's it's a pretty broad church, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, what's FinTech, right? Define it for me, right? It's, it's, it's a bit of everything. But one of the interesting things that, that we're thinking about here in Melbourne is the intersection of FinTech and other verticals, mm. right? So personally, my view is the really interesting stuff happens at the edges, yep. right? So it's when something, one vertical meets another vertical, that's where the new interesting things happen. And then that's what we're trying to promote. So you mentioned AgTech, we've got a strong partnership with SproutX. Mm. Um, we're really excited about FinTech meeting AgriTech. Yeah. Um, what, what kind of opportunities arise there? And a lot of our corporate partners are really excited about it as well, which is which is great. And then the other one, which uh, we're really excited about as well, sort of this will be one of the first times we've spoken about it pretty publicly, is we've got the actuator in our space as well, which is a medtech accelerator. Mm. Super exciting. That's the play around fintech meets medtech, mm. right? So it's those verticals that I think we're going to find something really interesting in Victoria. You know, coming back to. Um, Victoria, New South Wales. I think that's probably going to be a difference here in Victoria is fintech meets, you know, vertical X. Mm. That's what I think is going to be really interesting to see because, I, I mean, I personally, I'm looking at it, right? I'm thinking about what's the green field? Yeah. What's, what's the new opportunity? Fintech meets travel, fintech meets sort of, you know, personal wealth management and personal goals. Um, yeah, there's so many interesting, interesting intersections of yeah. fintech with other industries. And it's really interesting, you know, the future of financial services for a millennial or somebody younger could easily be that they don't use a bank at all. They use a, a travel app that actually handles their banking for them or right. they use a, a lifestyle app or a gym app. It fulfills their life goals and it just happens to be powered by a bank somewhere. Yeah. Sort of stepping away from that for a second, but really linked with this, right, which is this idea of unbundling banks, right? Mm. We, we, everyone's seen the CB Insights um, picture of Wells Fargo's website being pulled apart by a whole bunch of startups, right? So one view of the world is... Um, is this idea of unbundling banks, right? They're being attacked, right? Another way to look at that, mm. I think, in a more um, productive way for a lot of incumbents to think about that is to say, there's actually an ecosystem of mm. apps being built around different parts of your bank, yeah. right? So how do you foster that ecosystem? And so to my mind, that ecosystem is beyond what's on your website, right? To use that CB Insights uh, diagram, it's it, it could be broader. You're talking about health, right? So there's no reason why there isn't a play around and you've seen Fitbit do it, right? Around really integrating your wellness, your health, and taking it that one step further and saying, well, you're wearing a band all the time. Why wouldn't you just pay with it, mm. right? So it's that ecosystem, but getting broader and broader and broader yep. is another way to look at it, I think. I was chatting with uh, Rocky Scapolini um, recently, and you know, the conversation we led to was around business fabrics 
and then you know who are the who are the participants in in a business fabric you know yeah. in, in a you know in a complex supply chain where it's not just linear it's it's much more like a fabric where thing everything's connected to everything within that context you know a bank is an implicit part of so many types of transaction from shopping through to through to fulfillment through to supply through to production of goods and services the money is 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 always a part of the uh, of the story and so yeah. the question really is is to do the banks start to create those fabrics and be part of that ecosystem that where you create these sophisticated new types of experiences yeah. you know do they do, do they drive that themselves or do they participate or if they do neither you know then they run the risk of, of starting to look a, look, look a little bit like a kodak I think fabric's a really good analogy, right? Uh, the other one I tend to think about is they're involved in, in a huge array of transactions, a, a whole bunch of economic activity, but I think it, it revolves around what are they good at and what, what do people think about when they think about banks, right? And generally around the world, it's sort of this, right? And this is the dichotomy the banks struggle with, which is trusted, but not necessarily liked, mm. right? So high levels of trust. In Australia, no one's worried about their life savings going anywhere, right? We're not concerned, generally speaking, at a bank imploding. But would we recommend it to a friend? Probably not, mm. right? So it's this dichotomy of trusted, but not necessarily liked, right? So what I tend to think about with banks is, what's the big value prop? It's, to me, I think banks are a trust layer, mm. right? We trust them implicitly. Um, how do they leverage that? And what areas do they start to play in that they can leverage their trust. It, it's an interesting thread to pull out, though, if you sort of go, okay, if we accept that banks are trusted, and I think we can accept that, then what could we do to actually make them liked? And that's a yeah. really disruptive concept to actually get to a point where people like their bank. And on previous Breaking Bank shows, I've talked about the difference between a gymnasium and a personal trainer and how if you end up running the Boston Marathon, you don't call your gym, you yeah. call your personal trainer. And, you know, when you run it and you have this hero moment, it's the personal trainer that you call, not the gym. And so the, the question is, is do, do the banks, are they happy enough behaving like gyms or do they actually truly want the sort of accolades that you'd give your personal trainer when you achieve a goal that's really meaningful to you? And that requires a degree of intimacy that most banks have been reluctant to try and do. You know, they have no idea what most of their customers' goals are. Yeah. They, don't, they don't have that in their CRM system. You know, they have name, age, sex, date of birth, blah, blah, blah. But goal, what the hell's that? Um, and so if you want to behave like a personal trainer or if you want to be liked, you have to be relevant. And to be, if you want to be relevant, you have to know what your customers actually want. And that's not upsell and cross-sell. That's actually understanding what the goal of the customers are. And, and that's a really disruptive proposition. And so the question really is, is, do banks cede that territory to someone else who provides that relevance? Or do they engage in that territory and say, actually, no, we want to be relevant. We want to be the personal trainer. And that's a really interesting challenge. No, I think so. And, and, you know, this comes back to the, are we all things to everyone or are we just the platform providing yep. the trust layer, however you want to put it, um, you know, the Apple play, right? Yes. Build the ecosystem of apps around you. I don't, my personal view mm. is build the ecosystem of apps around you. Mm. The reality is Apple knows they're not great at everything, but what they're really great is making the best um, physical Building the fabric, product. basically. Yeah. Well, building the platform that really powers everything, mm. right? I'm really excited. Like with Apple, I'm really excited about what they, what they do with the AirPods. Yep. I think that's just the next big platform, right? Mm. Like it's an interesting platform. Um, I think someone described it well. It's the first um, implantable. Like mm. I walk around all day with them, right? And mm. it's the sort of same flow on thinking that I think a lot of banks should be thinking about. It's like, okay, this is a layer that we, yes. we are the layer that we can, you know, others can build on. And the smart ones are thinking about that. Yes. I mean, we saw just yesterday one of our companies be acquired by Liberty, mm. right? So Money Place was acquired by Liberty. I love it because it's a corporate partner acquiring one of our one of our startups in our space. It's a great story. But mm. I think that's a really clever play, yep. right? Best in breed, great company, great founder, great team, 
on one view might not be the best in that space. Why not just go out and acquire it, bring that in-house mm. and start to build on a platform that's actually um, liked by its loved by its customers, yeah. right? It's a great NPS, like just a great company as well. Why not build on that? There's nothing wrong with thinking about it not as well. an ecosystem app play, right? I just think that's where it's headed anyway. And so you might as well get there. Well, that, that strategy of, you know, experiment yourself, but then go out and see who's actually nailing it and then buy them. That's worked well for Facebook. It's worked well for Google on the whole. It's worked certainly well for Salesforce and, and various others. So why not the banks? So, you know, engage with the ecosystem, identify some of the opportunities, and then be brave enough to acquire some of them or partner with some of them to actually scale them up. Yeah, and look, yeah. I'm going to make a bold prediction. I think, I think 2018 is going to be an interesting year for acquisitions. I mm. think people start to realize that the acquisition play uh, makes sense, yeah. right? Because you've got two choices, right? You either learn to build in-house really well or you learn to integrate better, mm. right? And if you acquire the right company, integration, I mean, integration is always a challenge, right? I'm sure as part of the, a due diligence process, it's, okay, let's, let's think about synergies, right? Mm. And synergies are always hard to calculate. They're hard to actually yield out of a deal. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's probably easier for a lot of mm. banks to learn to be really good integrators, acquirers, than just actually to learn how to be good product builders. And, and obviously, as we go increasingly into a era of open banking-based architectures, yeah. acquiring and integrating will, should become a simpler a proposition. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, on the tech side, I don't think that's that far off. I think that's no. just gonna happen, right? I think people will learn to move to an open architecture. It's happening, like, I mean, you've seen Macquarie do it. Um, a whole bunch of other banks have APIs ready yep. to go lined up. And most of them have the right, the more important piece around that, we're, we're not we're not in Europe, most of them aren't sort of thinking defensive. A lot of them mm. thinking actually, okay, how do we use this as a strength, right? Yes. But the harder thing is how do you integrate a company that has a startup culture into a big behemoth? Mm. That's the hard bit, right? Well, I'll get um, Miley Carnegie on the Unbreaking Bank shortly, and that's one of the, the probably the first question I'll ask her is, yes. you know, is how's it going in in getting that startup mindset bolted into or infused? Actually, probably a better word, infused into a large bank. So that's definitely a challenge. Um, so Melbourne FinTech Hub, yeah, uh, tell me about it. What is it? I'm going to start with just we are excited about it, right? Let's Congratulations, with, by the way. No, thank you. It's, it's been a process, right? So 2017, we. Uh, put in a bid to be the fintech hub operator. So an RFP went out from the Victorian government. We put in for that um, and we were lucky to be successful and are taking over a space called the Good Shed North. It's a gorgeous space, oh, isn't it's it? It's an amazing space. I love the history. So um, for, for people that know, never heard of the space, um, especially I suppose in Asia, this means nothing, right? The Good Shed North. But historically, it is um, a goods shed, quite literally. Trains used to come into the city, drop off goods. Um, it's a beautiful building. It just has the heritage of industry. It's. Um, it know, almost it's looks like it has the ghost of a steam train in it. Oh, the whole floor is raised a metre above the street level. So if you look out the window, you can see the street level, it's lower. In the building, if you lift up the panels, on the, on the floor, you can see the train uh, tracks that are still there, mm. right? It's like the heritage is there. And I, I just love the concept mm. of being in a space like that, right? Yeah. Where industry has traveled through when you've had the goods come through. It's just got the right heritage around innovation. It's going to be rich in stories, you know, because there's always, always that wonderful story about the dimensions of the space shuttle that were defined by the widths of the roads, which were defined by the width yeah. of the railway lines. And, and so, you know, when you're starting to talk about uh, innovation and change, building upon on, on what's gone before, I think is a really interesting way to start. Oh, yeah. And then just, I mean, the physical space is beautiful. It's yeah. just amazing. It's so inspirational, right? We've got this great table. It's, it's quite funny. I had people through the space this morning 
And I said, I have to show you a table. And like, they looked at me puzzled and I'm like, no, no, you have to see this table. So it's, the table is literally made out of the doors of the original building, a beautiful glass panels we put across it. And it's just, it's, it's great. And I mean, I had someone joke, they said, we should call this the Jeff Bezos table, right? Because the story of Jeff Bezos, whenever he has a new employee, go out, buy a door, whack on some legs and off you go, right? So just to instill that frugality, this is a little different, but that same concept, it's great. I love the space and you know, we're excited to do stuff in it. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's dying for, for something amazing and innovative in there. And now it's also in a great location. So you've yep. got ANZ around the corner, you've got NAB around the corner, you've got Bendigo around the corner, mm. and, and they're just the ones that come top of mind. I think there's obviously a bunch of other yeah. banks and other larger players not so far away. Mm. So. There's two of them in Melbourne. What's the story there? So you're right, two have been funded. The York Butter Factory have a fintech hub as well that they'll be running, will be running one. And if you think about Melbourne, Melbourne's about collaboration, right? Hmm. Um, so look, we're really excited to, to know that the government's taking a position where they want to grow the ecosystem, grow what's happening in fintech. The more the better. I think, yeah, we, we've, we've collaborated on a number of events with them already. Um, last year. So I'm, I'm just excited that mm. we're going in a direction where fintech is something that is on the radar of government. Mm. Oh, look, I think I think it is very exciting. And Melbourne's you know, generated a number of interesting startups and fintechs that have gone on to become very successful and, and, and scale internationally. And, and I would imagine that very much your focus is, is how do you create great startups here in Australia that you can then take around the world and take into Asia in particular? Yeah. Do you see sort of, it's very early days, obviously, but I'll, I'll ask the question. Do you see any sort of differences in, in approach between the two fintech hubs? Or obviously, there'll be a great deal of collaboration, yeah. but do you see sort of an industry focused difference? You, you'll just sort of see how it unfolds. I look, we'll see how it unfolds. And I wouldn't speak to anyone else's strategy or thoughts around how they're looking at it. Fair but enough. I think from our perspective, look, we're, we're collaborative. We want to be working with everyone in the ecosystem. We know our partnership with Sprout Air, partnership with the actuator. We're doing some exciting things with RMIT, for example, as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're about collaborating in the ecosystem and, and making sure that, you know, we're out there. Yep. But in terms of differences, we're really, I'm really focused on collaborating with other verticals. To be honest, I think that's really an interesting play in Victoria. I think Victoria has a piece around community that I, I don't think anywhere um, in the rest of Australia has. Mm. Um, I think community is really strong here. Uh, I've been to meetups, I've, I've, you know, I've seen other things around Australia um, in terms of community, I think Victoria has a really strong one. Mm. So, you know, how do we leverage that? How do we think about collaboration? That's important, right? And I, I, I'm just excited that we're moving forward and have the space now to be yep. quite honest. What's your sort of six month, 12 month, 24 month goals? What do you want to achieve? Yeah, I, look for us, it's, you know, we want to have fantastic startups in the space, but we're really, we're, we're focused on helping fintech startups accelerate their growth. And having great collaboration partners like the 24 corporate partners we have is, is a real help, right? We're able to help startups plug into the corporate world pretty easily, the right startups. So for us, you know, over the next six months, it's let's get up and running and get to a sprinting pace, getting as many startups in there of a high caliber as possible over the next six months would be great. 12 months, you know, more startups, more growth, more activity around you know, not only accelerators, incubators, all the stuff that's really, I think, helpful to the startups. Yeah. Events, you know, love having people come through the space, love having events, but showcasing our startups at those events. And then going forward, it's, you know, really being the center for innovation around, not only fintech, right? Like we want to play with other, other yeah. players in the ecosystem. So, you know, going forward after the next 12 months where I think it's really going to be 
getting mm. it up and running. Like, let's be honest. Yeah. It's, it's a big effort. Oh, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do, right? The fabric of the building's there, but it's, you know, how do we fill it with the right yeah. startups and give the personality it needs, right? And also create like a, a funnel where you're attracting the very best talent and you're building capability in the, in the ecosystem to go into the funnel yeah. so that, you know, it's, it's not a question of having a great facility and great talent, but actually and you know, average ideas going into it. Mm. And, that's, and that's always the challenge in, in any new incubator or accelerator program is mm. how do you get quality into it? And, you know, one thing I think Stone Chalk has done very well, particularly in Melbourne because I've spent some yeah. time down there, is you've got some really good intake in, and it's a very diverse yeah. intake as well. Oh, no, no, we've been super lucky to get amazing startups into the space. I was speaking to one of our partners the other day about the types of startups we, we, we've attracted so far to date, right? Mm. We've got people who have listed companies who are now doing a mm. startup. I've had people who have had multiple exits coming in. We've got a company just moved in that's doing a challenger bank. We've got mm. companies that um, have deep corporate partnerships have been running hard at those corporate partnerships for years. People who have raised substantial capital, people who have exited, right, recently. So spoke about money place before. That's, that's the fabric mm. of the types of you know, coming back to this fabric idea, that's the fabric of Stone Chalk here in Melbourne is the founders are phenomenal. But more importantly, all the founders are willing to help and contribute to the ecosystem um, that we're building and even beyond that, right? So Stuart Stoyne is a classic example of this, right? Mm. He's a founder of Money Place, sits on the board of FinTech Australia, has been pivotal in building the FinTech ecosystem locally. You know, those are the types of people we have in the space that want to contribute and, and build something um, beyond their startup as well. You've also no doubt got a reasonable number of people who've come back from California or back from elsewhere in the world yeah. with that experience. Yeah, we, we do. We get, we get people who um, inbounders as well, sorry, actually. Mm. Um, so we've got two companies that are inbound from overseas um, and they're building local capacity, right? Yeah. So one's from Japan, the other one's from Singapore. They're building that out here, that, that talent pool for their, for their companies here. Yeah. Because when I think about the ecosystems that I've worked in mm. that work really well, and you know, I spent some time in California, and what makes California work, there's lots of reasons for it, um, and there's no single one reason, but one of the reasons I think that I noticed was just the depth of experiences there. There's mm. so many people who've been through it several times, who've created so many businesses, who's cra who've crashed and burned, who've dusted themselves off and, and gone and done it again. And that depth of experience, or, or what some people sometimes call the, the hero's journey, where you've gone through the hero's journey a few times and you've come back to the village with a few scratches, but you've actually got that experience, Sometimes, you know, in, in, you know, we, you know, I think there certainly was a time in Australia where we just lacked that sort of experience. We lacked mm. people who'd come back with a few scratches. And I think that's changed a lot. And I think, you know, the incubators yeah. and accelerators where they attract people who've come back or who've got a few scratches on them uh, and have had some success but also some failure, I think that really deepens the, the quality of the ecosystem a lot. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. You know, SFs, SF and just generally the Valley, right, will is a classic example of this, right? There've been multiple cycles that have happened. In Australia, you know, I, I think the, the stat or the, the number that people talk about in SF is sort of, you know, seventh cycle type stuff, right? Where you've had founder, exit, contribute back into the ecosystem through mentoring or angel investing. Mm. The next wave come through, they go through that same cycle, right? And we're starting to see those people come back. I, I totally agree, yeah. right? But not only that, I think in FinTech, there's a slightly different cycle that's happening, right? Which is, you're finding founders coming out of your banks, your big banks, big financial service providers, mm. and are coming out and, and doing startups. Mm. That's happening more and more. It's a different type of hero's journey, right? Yes. They've come out, they've learned, they understand the problem intimately. They know that internally 
for example, it can't be done or yeah. there are blockers for it to happen or it's just quicker if you left the company and, and were able to do it on the outside. I've got a few founders who are doing that, right? Yeah. They're X something, they've seen the problem, they get it and they've come out to build the solution to that problem. That sort of calls out that startups is not just a millennial activity. It's it's an activity that I think is best done where you actually get a combination of some experience, some you know real life experience as well as some real work experience, some 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 crashing and burning as well as some success hopefully, and then you combine that with some just raw talent and you just mix and match and and you know, off you go, and, and I think that's where startups really when you know the startups that I watch that are really nailing it have got that chemistry where they've got a bit of experience a little bit of gray hair um but also you know a a depth of understanding of the real problem worth solving yeah we don't need tinder for cats or uber for goats what we need are are, are solutions that solve really interesting problems and one area that i'm watching closely at the moment is in the blockchain space is the use of blockchain in the logistics area and and in freight and bill of materials and so forth and and, you know the role of banks in amongst that whole supply chain i think is is really interesting and you know, some of those areas are, are complex. They require a lot of domain knowledge. And so I'm seeing some really interesting collaboration between people who've coming out of the big logistics companies, the big freight companies and the freight forwarding companies, combining with you know, really smart switched on blockchain developers mm. to create really interesting stuff. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, right? FinTech is, is the quintessential example of experience meets, um, you know, whatever other talent. Raw was, talent or raw whatever talent. we call it. Yeah, whatever you want to call it, right? I've been thinking about this recently, actually, which is when is it right to be naive and when do you actually need that experience? Mm. So one that I think about, you know, very clearly is capital markets. You need the experience. Like you just can't. It's so complex. It's so deep that trying to solve a problem in capital markets is naivety only just, you know, gets you killed, right? Yeah. Like it's, just, it's yeah. a hard market, hard problem, a set of problems to solve for. But then, you know, we've seen Stripe, right? And the, the founders, no idea about payments did it and, and, you know, have built a behemoth of a business, right? Mm. So there's always these counter examples of it. And I always wonder where in fintech it's worth being naive. And I'm sort of air quoting mm. worth because it's always, you speak to a lot of founders like, if I knew how hard this problem was, I would have never done this, right? Mm. So, you know, you need to be naive enough to not know all the problems you're going to face. Yeah. But there are many instances where, yeah, you just can't go anywhere without or, or you see it purely from a customer perspective of what the job to be done is what yeah. what is the customer really trying to do and you ignore all of the uh or not ignore but but you're somewhat oblivious initially to all of the complexity that happens under the hood yeah uh, and but from that proposition of i'd like to solve this problem in a better way that solves the problem from the customer's perspective yeah that's sometimes i think is a really good place to start yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you know, Stripe was probably driven mm. by that, right? Which is how do you make the developer experience around um, taking payments or building a, a payments checkout easier, better, faster, right? Yeah, and if you think about PayPal, sort of the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah like don't really think any of the founders were, you know, 30-year financial services. They weren't. Right, no, yeah, none of them no. were, right? They started with some Palm Pilots and thought it'd be cool if you can move money across Palm Pilots, mm. right? It's, it's total naivety, right? And then just built out into a behemoth. So sometimes, I don't know, right? Like, I, I'm still debating this in what areas, because I think it does matter, right? Mm. I just think what vertical you're attacking in fintech, it matters as to whether you should have a team of naive people versus people who have deep expertise. So the one that I'm currently thinking about is neobanking, mm. right? Is it better to have bankers? And I think the answer is actually no. Or people who have consumer product experience, you know, marketing experience, like have a team that's really outside of banking. 
because I, I think a lot of the rails are there. I think maybe the better team or the team that wins in, in neo banking is going to be one that's customer centric, focused on building you know a product that actually is more Apple esque than banking vets who, who who are trying to solve a problem you know outside yes. of that. Right? Like I just think that's that's a classic example of where counterintuitively, maybe mm. for some people, it's sort of a counterintuitive view that you know you want to have people who are outside of banking predominantly leading the teams in a neo bank. Yeah, I, th- I think it's spot on because I think you know, somebody from outside of banking would look at the concept of a checking account, a savings account, a credit card and go, why do I have these separate folders to put my money in? Why why isn't my money you know, sitting in a cash hub and it's just mobilised through these different instruments? Why do we actually put it in literally different folders and different different types of accounts with different interest rates and, and so forth and uh, that run on different systems and, and so forth? The baggage of we are where we are, but many banks are sitting on legacy core banking systems that, right, that are course. really um, making it hard sometimes for them to actually reinvent themselves in a way that's more relevant. Yeah. But yeah, look, it, I, I think neo banking is one that I'm really thinking about mm. at the moment, right? Like, what does that space look like? Yeah. Because um, I think it's almost a perfect storm in Australia, right? Like, uh, if you think about some of the data that's out there, you see Australia early adopters of products generally, but then in banking, we're fifth mm-hmm. um, in terms of early uh, of adoption rates for fintech products, high levels of sophistication. We generally trust banking. It, it sort of high, deg- high degrees of fragmentation. So the share of wallet um, yeah, is yeah, pretty low here in Australia. I spent some that's time with, with Wells Fargo and they were quite surprised at how many bank cards I had in my wallet. And I said I'm a pretty typical Australian. Most, yeah. typical, most Australians have at least two, if not three, relationships with, with, with a bank, yeah. uh, with different banks. Yeah. Um, we're definitely promiscuous on the banking front, right? Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not something we have necessarily strong but, affinity to. But equally, we don't tend to churn much. And yeah. you know, so again, going back to your perfect storm, you know, is you know, you have open bank APIs, you have a raw commission, you have fintech startups creating new banking experiences. And, you know, it's not out of the question that you, somebody couldn't conceive of, a, of an innovation that's just you know, a compelling solution that just works and it's easy to use and easy to then migrate customers across. And, you know, there must be people who are looking at, you know, what would happen if we lost 10,000 customers a day for the next, you know, three weeks because somebody launched a new app that was really, really cool mm. or, you know, a million customers. You know, what would happen if we lost a million customers? And those sorts of those sorts of disruptions aren't out of the question, you know, and, and certainly if you look at the Chinese market, you know, somebody could easily light up a, you know, easily with, you know, quotes around it, but, Somebody could quite conceivably light up a very interesting financial service-powered solution and mm. you know, acquire a million customers quite quickly. Uh, oh, like we've talked about China. That's sort of you yeah. know, stock standard China scale stuff, yeah. right? I, I sort of million like, customers. That's tiny. <laughs> no, <we're>, <laughs> that's, <laughs> a, quite, that's, that's a proof of concept. Yeah, well, there's literally I was speaking to uh, a company out of China not that long ago. They they were in town for a conference we ran late last year. This is literally what he said. It was like whatever it was, two million customers, and he's like, "Oh, we're, we're early on. We're early on. It's only two yeah. million customers." Um, and I'm just like, you know, and I always joke, it's just China scale, hashtag China scale, right? Like, it's it's a completely different market. Yeah, you know, I think it is, I just think it's the perfect storm in Australia for a neo bank, and I I think a lot of banks probably aren't taking it seriously enough, mm. to be honest. I'd be mobilising my M and A team if I was at a bank at the moment to sort of be like, let's see who gets ahead, and let's just acquire someone. And potentially parachuting some talent into some of the incubators so that you actually really are across right. what they're doing? No, 100%. I mean, the part of what we want to do in, in our space, sort of just coming back to the FinTech Hub, we would want to have a lot of our corporate mm. partners in the space. Right? I just think it's important. 
So let's actually brainstorm for a second. Yeah, yeah what sure. would what would be the ideal defense strategy for for a bank in the next for the next twelve months? And I would imagine it would be get your API strategy right yeah. and get your data strategy right. Mm-hmm. Be sort of be the bottom of the gravity well for startups. All the startups want to build around you and and be the most attractive. Um, be incredibly transparent so that you could whatever the Royal Commission spits out, you're already compliant. Yeah. Um, in fact, you're actually then some. And be the bank that is really exploring and experimenting, but is also partnering really, really well. Yeah. yeah. That, that seems to me like sort of the, you know, the sort of the cheat sheet for banks for the for the next year. No, I do disagree. What, I th- what did yeah. I miss? No, no, I don't think at you know at, <clears throat> at a high level, don't disagree at all with any of that. I think that all makes logical sense, but. The question more is everyone has limited resources. Mm. Banks have limited resources, right? And, and I don't mean, you know, I'm sure some people are listening go, oh, I'm pretty sure Bank X had a trillion dollar profit last year, right? Like whatever it might be, I'm sure they've got enough resources, but it's mindshare, right? Mm. Is where can you actually direct enough mindshare in an organization to be focused on? So to me, I, I think as a cheat sheet, they all make total sense. But the question becomes more, where do you start? Where do you put all the ammunition to start with to create a domino effect so the rest of that makes sense, mm. right? So Royal Commission, uh, that's happening. You know, I don't know where that lands. You know, who knows, right? What that's going to cover, where that's going to go. So maybe I'll park that to the side for a moment. To me, I think it's the partnering. I think mm. banks really are in need of learning to partner better. And a lot of them are trying, right? A lot of them are trying to get better at partnering with startups. The starting point is, you know, how do we change our procurement process so mm we can deal with startups and not make it look and feel like they're, you know, we're dealing with an IBM, yeah. right? The same procurement process cannot work for a startup, a startup as you use with IBM. That's just not gonna work. So how do you change that process? How do you learn to actually be embedded in the ecosystem, right? So you actually know who the players are. Um, you can have a coffee easily, easily reach out to startups, right? Um, know what's happening, have visibility, right? So I, I think that partnership plays where it starts. Um, and I agree with you, you know, and maybe it's concurrently, maybe it's in parallel type thing where they work on their APIs. Mm. Right? I mean, that's happening anyway. Like, let's, you know, all banks are working on some API strategy and doing something, but having that open availability is, is important. There's often a disconnect in large organisations, and this isn't just a banking problem, but there's often a disconnect between the technology strategy or technology agenda and the business strategy and and i think of a um, as soon as you but i think as soon as you think of that you say you've business and tech you've got a problem exactly you've got a problem but i can think of uh, of at least one bank here that built a really awesome app and the business parked it and yeah. then only to realize that actually if they'd launched it they would have had a, about a four-year head start on everyone else yeah. the the disruptors or innovators dilemma rather you know yeah. the innovators dilemma is very very alive and well yeah. in many a bank mm-hmm. and so while they might sit on the fence and look at what's going on and go this is really interesting mm-hmm. there is a bit of a rabbit in the headlights problem you know they can go well this is really interesting it's really bright and it's coming right at me but it's you know I'm not going to actually do a great deal about it when that happens, it's a terrible waste. You know, mm. you know, it was a terrible waste that Kodak went bankrupt and it didn't need to. There were bright people there who were telling it what to do. It just didn't listen to them. It didn't commercialise some of the more interesting IP that it already had. And banks are full of bright people and full of good IP. Indeed. Um, but there is a tendency for them to go, okay, yes, we'll do this, but we won't do it now. Or this is interesting, we'll keep it inside the lab, but we'll never actually launch it. Um, and you know, all of the banks have, you know, at least you know, all of the majors have all participated in a good mix of sort of innovation where they've launched something and then innovation where they've kind of walked away from it a bit 
um, or sort of theatre. And, and I think that's a real risk is they, they're having the right conversations, but they're not doing much more than that. Yeah. And, and so I'll step away from banks for a moment and I'll come mm. back to it. But I think where we're sort of seeing this play out is super. Yes. Right. So I think a lot of super funds are getting really concerned with your spaceships, your Zoopers, mm. your grows of the world that they're seeing it, right? Mm. It's happening right in front of them. And I think a lot of them are thinking very deeply about what their strategy looks like. Right, so I think that's going to happen in banking when we start to see a few neo banks mm. really pop onto the market. That's going to be the impetus that takes you know EGM of tech, you know, or whatever their title is, goes to the board and says, "Look, mm. right, this is what we're facing. These guys took, um, you know, a million bucks, two million bucks in, plus they've got their capital requirement. They're working towards getting a full ADI. Uh, look where they are already, mm. right? Or maybe it's a neo bank from the UK that lands in Australia, right? Yeah. That really starts to scare them." And I think you need to see it. Like you just need that actual visibility of what's happening, the buzz, all that for I think banks to move forward at a more rapid pace. But you're right. You know, one view of the world, and I, I love the phrase, you know, innovation theater, but um, I, I like the, the phrasing of, you know, cargo cult, mm. right? All the right things are happening, but there's nothing there. Yes. Right? That's, that's sort of how it sometimes feels. But there isn't a bank that doesn't understand that partnering is a you know priority to them. They want to be doing it better and they're doing things about it. It's just, I think it's speed, mm. right? If a neobank actually rolls out into market, you know, in a blink of an eye, they could have 50, 100, 150,000 customers and all of a sudden they've got enough of a critical mass, enough base to start to really push. And, you know, in banking world, 150,000 customers is sort of laughable, mm. but, you know, 150,000 uh, people in your community, mm. that's powerful. And also acquiring 150,000 customers in a month or a week yep. or a day, you know, that's just massively disruptive. Yeah, look, Robin Hood, right? Yes. Launches crypto 800,000 people over a weekend, right? Yeah. And I, I've been joking recently, I've been tweeting about it, it's like maybe the way to launch a neobank is to offer crypto, Yeah. right? And just load up your customer base mm. um, and off you go and, you know, hope you don't churn yeah. X, right? Whatever that number ends up being. Well, I think, you know, going back to your perfect storm, you know, the, another key element of the perfect storm is the mainstreaming of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And, you know, if ever there was a technology that was relevant to banking, I think, you know, the automation of banking processes, you know, banking is an arbitrage game and banking is is something that's about hedging. And, you know, the, the sophistication of the algorithms and where you put money and the ability to be able to report this, the performance of your what money. What do you think about AI? Sorry, sorry yeah. to cut you off, but what do you think about AI? I mean, I, I've, got a, I've got a thesis or my thesis is probably a strong word, but a what, hypothesis. What, look, what are your thoughts? As with all things, you know, they are, they're over, overhyped initially, but then they become, you know, realistic. So so we're at a 1.0 stage, you know, yeah. and there are certain specific tasks that AIs are massively outperforming humans for, you know, whether it's parking your Prius or cooking your toast or maybe hedging your money across a money market. There are AIs that can do those sorts of things far better than a human can do them. It's about as the as that portfolio of, of you know vertical AIs or, or single focused AIs yeah. as that broadens, that becomes really compelling. And you know the more we start to see APIs driven by machine learning or driven by some sort of AI component that makes it a really smart API, yeah. the more we start to see smart contracts actually powered by some sort of AI module that actually identifies you know the propensities and, and risk ratings and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the more we start to use AIs for doing credit reference scores or behavior scores. Uh, and it's a more sophisticated model, 
it has real potential to disrupt, but also behave, create experiences that are much more akin to that personal trainer, where I'm coaching you, I'm helping you to achieve an important goal. The version of AIs that we've got out there are being popularized by chatbots, you know, and yeah. so people are looking at chatbots and calling that an AI. Of course, it's a chatbot. You know, we've had those for 10 years now. The, the most interesting are AIs where maybe there's a chatbot involved, or maybe not actually, but it's actually a very sophisticated set of algorithms that can solve really interesting problems that are high value. And I think we will see that become reasonably mainstream over the next 12 months. Yeah, no, interesting. I, I, th- I think that's spot on. So my hypothesis, I, I sort of like to give my little hypotheses names, right? So my one around AI is the robots are coming, but they're dumber than you think. Yes. Right? So, which sort of fits with your verticalized view. Yeah, no, I think it's a spot on. Verticalized view, they right? can't, they, They're like Daleks that can't climb stairs. Exactly, right? And then they've got limited uh, capacity to do things, right? It's like, I think, you know, maybe I'm misattributing this, but I think Benedict Evans did a talk recently and he said something to the effect of, we've got robots that clean clothes. They're called washing machines. Right, but it's yeah, it's, or, it's a, or, it's, or it's toast your bread. They're called toasters. Exactly right. They do a specific thing really well. Machines have been doing it for a long time. Except the toasters, they've never really done that well. No, 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 no. Exactly. <laughs> How have we not solved this problem? Um, so I made an investment in a company that does something similar, right? Which is they are focused on um, taking the mortgage folder that you give to a broker, digitizing that, pushing that data via API into a financial institution. Nice, right? Simple, right? Yeah. The concept is simple. Um, so Breeze Docs do that in a really amazing way. Yep. API driven. Charge 10 bucks for that per transaction. Boom, Boom right? It's, it's a business, right? And at some point when AI is more ubiquitous and it's an API call to do something around AI, right? We're seeing Watson oh. and AWS will play in the space. And everyone, you know, everyone wants to have their own um, machine learning algorithms on demand, right? There's no reason why they can't integrate it. Because the nasty thing that a lot of people don't understand is that it's not the tech when you're trying to do a B2B sale to a bank, it's the relationship. Once you're in a bank, once you've got that relationship, and so these guys have a number of relationships with financial institutions, once you're in a bank, you've got the relationship, you can upsell. And so where are we today is the question. What can banks live with or financial institutions? I mean, we're saying banks, but really we're talking about all financial institutions. What can they live with today? And really what they want to think about is process automation, oh. right? That's AI to them. Yes, let's be honest, right? Like that's AI. That's yeah. that's what they're thinking AI They're thinking means. some sort of front end in front of their call center to, to divert calls and take costs out. That's but it. it could easily be actually the equation is not driven by a cost takeout. It's actually driven by a relationship uplift. It's driven by a depth of relationship and, and you know, you've, you've moved from the gymnasium to the personal trainer. No, and that's exactly right. So where I'm trying to frame this, though, is to say, you know, as a, from a startup perspective, where's the big opportunity, right? The big opportunity is to say, solve the problem today, worry about, like, I'm going to air quote AI, worry about AI tomorrow because yep. the relationship's hard, the tech will get easier. Yes, it will. Yeah. Yep. And, and I think, you know, you're right that people will start daisy chaining AIs together and mashing them up. And so not, it's not necessarily one AI to rule the world. It's, it's actually a fabric, again, of, of different services that connect together that can help you, you know, create completely new and disruptive users. And this is the history of the web, right? Yeah. This is exactly the history of the web. Um, you know, you build a website, what do you do? It's maybe a WordPress-powered website. What do you do when you want to take a payment? You make an API call to Stripe. What do you do when you want to have search on your web, website? Maybe use Algolia. 
if you want to do X, Y, Z, you're going to use services, right? But you mash it together, you pull it together, and that's how you build your website. You don't try to build it all yourself. Because certainly, you know, I was building websites in in around sort of 99, 2000, and we were building a whole lot ourselves, and we were wasting a lot of money doing it. (laughs) But that was because the tooling wasn't there. The tooling wasn't there. Yeah. Um, So there's plenty of good Lego around us um, to leverage, and it's about how do we create sort of the future using the Lego we've got right around us already. No, it's 100%. I totally agree. All right, look, so thank you very much for being on, on Breaking Banks. I had a question for you. What do you need? What's uh, what's your ask? What would, uh, you know, you've got an ask, audience and, yeah. you know, what's what's your sort of your need for um, the, the fintech hub and for Stone & Chalk? Look, if you're a, a startup where we can help you, and that's this comes back to this idea of, you know, who is the, you know, prototypical startup that comes to Stone & Chalk, it's, it's one that we can help. So if you've got an idea, maybe you're a bit too early, but if you're starting um, to get get out into market, you've got a team of maybe two, three people, and you want to connect into any of our corporate partners, you're at that point in your journey, then reach out to me. I'm alan at stoneandchalk.com.au. Happy to open up my email. Just ping me, have a chat to me. More than happy to talk to you. But look, at at the end of the day, we want to build a mass of these startups in one place, right? I just think there's so much power behind community. So um, if you're a startup in the fintech space, you want to reach out, hit me up at alan at stoneandchalk.com.au. more than happy to talk. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much, Alan. That's, that's great. And uh, you know, I look forward to having you back as the fintech hub sort of gets established and, yeah. and uh, forward to broadcasting from the fintech hub sometime out of that uh, gorgeous railway shed. Yes. And um, so thank you very much for joining me today on uh, Breaking Banks Asia. Great. Thanks for having me. So that's this week's show. Follow us on Twitter at bbanksasia. Go to the website at asia.breakingbanks.com and, of course, subscribe to the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you, getting your feedback. Feel free to email me at simon at breakingbanks.com. All the best for this week. Bye.